John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible in front of you. We'll be on pages 897 and 898. If you're not familiar with reading the Bible, when we say John chapter 11, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, the little numbers are the verse numbers. We're going to talk this morning about the surprising offense of God's love. The surprising offense of God's love. But before we do that, I'm going to share some of my story with you. My earliest memory on this earth is of my mother trying to molest me. My first memory. I don't remember exactly how old I was when it happened, but I know that I was very young, probably four or five. And it's been roughly 30 years since that terrible night, but I can still remember most of it in vivid detail. I can remember the reddish hue of the room. I can remember the acrid air filled with Virginia Slim cigarette smoke. I can still remember the potent fear and confusion that filled my young heart as I laid there in that bed. I can, in an instant, recall the sudden panic that caused me to leap up out of the bed and to run out of the room and to run into the bathroom in our old house and slam the door behind me as I screamed and I cried out, I just need to go to the bathroom, Mom. I'll be right back. I can still remember the texture of the wooden bathroom door that I closed and locked behind me. I can still remember the I'm sorry. I can still remember the sound of my mother's voice calling out to me, calling me back to the bed with her as it came muffled through that bathroom door. And I can still remember folding my chubby little hands and praying and asking God to help me. Asking God to protect me. That prayer was the first prayer I can ever remember praying in this life. I don't know how I knew to pray it. I didn't grow up in a religious household. But I did. And to my young mind, that prayer went totally unanswered. God did not rescue me that night. And this fueled my anger at God for the rest of my adolescence. And here's what that anger sounded like. If God is real, if he's really there, and if he really hears our prayers, and if he really loves us like you people say he does, 
then why didn't he save me that night? Why didn't he rescue me? Why didn't he protect me? And not just that night, every other night, every other day. Why didn't he keep her from slamming my leg in the car door? Why didn't he keep her from beating me every day of my young life? Why didn't he keep her from emotionally abusing me every day that I can ever remember living with her? Why didn't God protect me? As I look back on that night and many other nights like it so many years later, I now know something to be true. I now know that God did love me and that he did hear me even though he did not rescue me from that place. But I know something more than that. And what I'm about to say is going to be pretty controversial. But I wouldn't say it unless I thought it was true. What I now know is that it is precisely because God loves me that he did not rescue me from that place. To say it more specifically in a way that may be even more offensive, that may be more difficult for you to stomach, I know that it is precisely because God loves me, he is glad that I suffered the way that I did in my childhood. Now, if you know me, you know I'm not a shock jock. I'm not building my ministry in this church on getting people in a room where I can say controversial things to them and, ooh, let's see how he's going to spin this one. No, I chose this word very intentionally when I say that Jesus is glad precisely because he loves me. He is glad that I suffered in this way. Now, let me pause and clarify. I am emphatically not saying that child abuse is something that makes God happy. To the contrary, God is not some kind of sadist who sits in heaven and smiles as children suffer. God hates abuse. His face is set against abuse. One day, the wrath of God will rain down on all the men and women who have taken advantage of children in their weak and helpless State. The Lord our God is the advocate of the weak. He is the one who stands up for the oppressed. To state it clearly, God hates what happened to me as a child. And yet, even as he hates what happened to me as a child, there is a sense in which because he loves me, he is glad that I went through it. And in order to understand why I would say that, we need to understand the story of Lazarus. So let's begin with John chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, 
Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already died, had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise and quickly go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly humbled, uh, troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. A stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha. Uh, Excuse me, take away the stone. 
Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. John 11 begins with Jesus still in the area across from the Jordan River. And as he was ministering there in a place called the Transjordan, a messenger came to him from a family in a village known as Bethany. In this village, which was, by the way, about 90 miles to the north of Jerusalem, people who have study these things, say that that would have been about a four days journey from where Jesus was down to Bethany. Uh, In this village was a family. The family had three members that we know of that are mentioned, two sisters, Mary and Martha, and a brother, Lazarus. Now here's what you need to know about this family. This family was not foreign to Jesus. Jesus knew this family very well. This is not like the royal official from chapter 4 who had a son who he needed healing for. This is not like the invalid from chapter 5. This is not like the healing of the blind man in chapter 9. In, in all of those situations, in all of those scenarios, there is a stranger that Jesus meets and serves and heals. Jesus knew this family, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. He knew them well. As a matter of fact, he loved them. Consider the language that Jesus uses of Lazarus in verse 11. In verse 11, the way that he refers to Lazarus is our friend Lazarus. Now, in verse 11, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, which means that Jesus was so close to Lazarus that when he talks to the disciples, he can say, our friend. Lazarus was kind of part of the crew. He was Jesus' friend and he was the friend of the disciples. Now look at verse 3. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So the sisters know that Jesus has a special bond, a loving affection for Lazarus. And it wasn't just Lazarus that Jesus loved. Jesus knew and loved Mary and Martha as well. Consider how, as we just read the story, after Lazarus died... Mary came out to greet Jesus while he was still waiting outside of the village he didn't, before he came into Bethany. When she found him there, she collapsed at his feet in grief and agony. When Jesus saw her suffering like this, the text says that he was greatly moved and deeply troubled. This is not the kind of um, an emotional response you get when you see a stranger cry or even a close acquaintance, right? 
If I'm out in public and I maybe off in the distance hear a strange woman crying, I, I will be inquisitive. I will be concerned. I will probably go to check on her, make sure that she's okay. But I won't feel this deep-seated emotional angst and agony. On the other hand, if I come home and I find my wife greeting me at the door in tears, and if she crumbles at my feet in, in brokenness and despair, well, that will elicit something that I might call deep distress, right? Because of the relationship there, because of my love for her. Friends, Jesus knew this family, and he loved them very well, and it says so right there in verse 5. Look at verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. This is very obviously not just referring to the general kind of love that we feel for all human beings. This is talking about a special relational love. Jesus knew these people and loved them deeply. Now, why am I going to such great lengths to demonstrate Jesus' love for this family? Why am I just kind of hanging out on this point? Well, because it's, it's very key to understanding what's happening in this story. It's, it's very important, especially as we transition from verse 5 to verse 6. There's one word there in the transition from verse 5 to verse 6 that is supremely important. And it's right there at the beginning of verse 6. It's the word so. Do you see that in your Bibles? In the Greek, this is just the, the word un. It's kind of like an O-V-N thing, right? It can also be translated as therefore. It means the same thing, so, therefore. And you remember, of course, that one of the rules of reading and interpreting our Bibles is that whenever we see a therefore, we need to stop and ask what it's there for, right? And the therefore is usually connecting two ideas. That's what's happening in verses 5 and verse 6. So let's just look at them together. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, in light of his deep love for them, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he rushed towards him. Is that what the text says? No. It says that he waited two days. He waited two days. We learn a little bit later on in the text, specifically, that he waited until Lazarus died before moving towards him. You can see that in verses 14 and 15. Look there. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but now let us go to him. So it was precisely because Jesus loved them that he waited until Lazarus was dead before he went to them. You tracking? Okay. A lot has been written about Jesus' timing in this story, right? Could Jesus have saved Lazarus if he would have left immediately? How long would the journey have taken if he would have taken, if you, you know, pull out a map, if he would have gone this route versus that route? Or did Jesus take the journey on foot or did he ride on a donkey and would one have been quicker than the other? That sort of thing. And I'm sure that figuring all that stuff out is very edifying in its own right. And I'm glad that there are Bible scholars out there thinking through these kinds of things. But to be honest with you, I, I kind of don't care about any of that because of what John tells us. Jesus' delay is on purpose. 
Did you notice that language that I, like the three times I've read this so far, I've just, I've, I've hung out on it, I've emphasized it from verses 14 and 15, right? Jesus says, I'm glad that I wasn't there to save him. My friend, the one I love, I'm glad I wasn't there to save him. I'm glad that he died. That's what Jesus says. Do you see that? At the beginning of the sermon, I told you that it was precisely because of the fact that Jesus loved me that he was glad that I suffered the way that I did. And now you can see why. Here in John 11, in the story of Lazarus, we learn that for the saints of God, it is precisely because God loves us that he lets bad things happen to us. I know that this is very counterintuitive to our carnal, human sinful, fallen understanding of what love is. I used to think that God allowed me to be abused because he didn't love me. But now I know that God allowed me to go through that because he loved me. And I'm going to show you why. I've got three points for you this morning. where We're just going to kind of unpack God's self-revelation of what his love is like in John chapter 11. So I'm going to give this to you one at a time as we walk through the sermon. Point number one, the love of God grieves with us in our suffering. The love of God grieves with us in our suffering. If you read the Bible long enough, if you study theology, you're going to find that there's always these, to our human perception, these apparent tensions in theology, right? So, on the one hand, God's Word tells us that God is near to us. And yet it also tells us that He is utterly transcendent, above us, far removed from us. On the one hand, Scripture tells us that God is totally sovereign over all things. On the other hand, Scripture tells us that we are morally responsible for our sins, There's a tension there. In John chapter 11, we are told that God is glad because He loves us. He is glad to let us suffer, and yet He grieves with us in our suffering. When I say that God grieves with us in our suffering, I don't mean to say that God feigns an emotional response to our pain. That's not what I mean. So for example, consider a teenage girl who's going through a difficult breakup. She's in her bedroom, you know, uh, pictures of the in sync on the wall, right? She's crying, her mom's sitting in the bed next to her, maybe there's ice cream around, I don't know, whatever a girlfriend breakup looks like, right? And she is distraught, she's broken, she's low, nothing's ever going to be the same again, right? My life is ruined, everything is lost, right? And her mom is sitting there holding her hand going, I know, I know, baby. I'm so sad. And the mom says, I'm so sad too, right? That's not what Jesus does when he enters into our grief. 
with us. He legitimately feels our pain. Look at verse 35. We'll start actually a little bit earlier. Start in verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you lain him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. When John tells us that Jesus wept, he doesn't mean that Jesus simply mirrored the outward emotional response of everyone who was there weeping. You know, kind of like a sociopath who doesn't really have an inner emotional life, but when the sociopath is around other human beings, he kind of mirrors whatever emotional response they seem to have so that he seems normal. That's not what's happening here with Jesus. Jesus' outward tears, outward expression of grief, was the result of an inward reality. John goes out of his way to tell us that in verse 33. In verse 33, he says, he was deeply moved in his spirit at their pain. He was greatly troubled by their pain. His tears were in true alignment with their tears. Jesus can use the language of gladness when speaking of the suffering of his loved ones because he knows that eventually their suffering will lead to glory. And we're going to talk about that all in point number three. But before we get to point number three and point number one, I want you to see this. Even though Jesus knows that their suffering will be turned to gladness, he still weeps. Do you see that? He knows. It's the first thing he says in verse 4. They're like, hey, Lord, uh, Lazarus is on his deathbed, and Jesus knows, oh, he's going to die. And what does he say in verse 4? Look there. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Even though he knew that Lazarus was going to die, he knew he was going to resurrect Lazarus. When Jesus encounters Mary there, low and broken, crumbled at his feet, he knows that in a day's time, within the next 24 hours, her tears will be turned to gladness. And he still weeps. Jesus knows that one day very soon he himself will continue to enjoy the sweet fellowship of his friendship with Lazarus. Flip over to chapter 12. This is after the resurrection. This kind of, I don't have time to hang out on this, but this should just blow your mind if you just stop and think about it for a second. This dude who was dead, Jesus resurrects him. And then just a little while later in verse 2 of chapter 12, it says, so they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Jesus knew that this was going to happen. And he was broken. And he cried. 
Now, here is some application for you. Here's what this means for us practically. Here's what this means for our tears. If Jesus can truly lament the suffering, brokenness, death, pain, loss, etc. of this fallen world, if he can legitimately experience that, that emotion, that lament, even though he knows for a fact that this world will be made one day new, then you can truly lament too. Sometimes as Christians, I feel like we, especially as like Reformed Christians who have this big view of God's sovereignty, like we know he's in control of everything, he's sovereign over our suffering, and one day he's going to fix it all, like we understand the storyline of the Bible, we feel like we can't legitimately cry and be broken and sad and hurt because we've experienced pain and loss in this world. When I say we think that, I mean me too, I, I lapse into that. But that's not the way that Jesus thinks, that's not the way the Apostle Paul thinks. Listen to the words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul says, speaking of Christians who have died, Christians that he knows will be resurrected, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may grieve as others do, right? Grieve as people who don't have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So listen to the logic that Paul is saying. We know that these Christians, and he's telling the Thessalonians, you should know this, we know that these Christians who have died will be resurrected. So I want that to affect the way you grieve. He doesn't say, I want this to keep you from grieving. He says, this should affect the way you grieve. But grief is still part of your normal spiritual response. According to the Apostle Paul, according to the example of Jesus himself, there is a kind of godly grief that we can experience in this life. A grief that cries, even though it sees with true eyes of faith, that one day every tear will be wiped away. If your logic and rationale says one day every tear will be wiped away, so... I'm going to be strong and I'm not going to cry and I'm not going to grieve because I know one day it's going to be fine. You've misunderstood really how this is supposed to work. You should be even more free to grieve the horrendous effects of the fall because you know that your tears will one day be turned to gladness. As I look back on my experience in that bathroom 30 some odd years ago, I now know that Jesus was weeping with me that night. So friends, I wonder what you may be crying about today. I wonder what suffering you may be going through today. Whatever it is, Jesus wants you to know that you are not grieving alone. If you think, oh, he's, he's a big God, he's a, a busy God, he can't see what's going on with me, he can't enter into, he's got seven billion people to attend to. Friends, that's what it means to be God. He can attend to 17 trillion people and it would not diminish his capacity to enter into your grief, not even a little bit. 
Whatever metric you would use to measure God's ability to enter into your grief, it cannot be diminished. He can enter into all of the grief, the deepest possible parts of grief that all of his saints experience simultaneously because he is God. If you feel like you are alone, because that's what grief does. That's what grief does. When we're grieving, we feel alone. We feel like no one else in the world understands. No one else in the world can understand what it is that I'm going through right now. That is sometimes true, but mostly that's just a little bit of a lie that grief tells us. But I'm not trying to, what I'm trying to tell you right now is that if you feel that way, even if that's partly true, Jesus is with you in your grief. Even when it feels like no one understands, Jesus understands. So if your boss is being cold and callous towards you, as maybe you're experiencing some kind of suffering in your life and it's affecting your work and you're trying to talk about that with your boss and he's not or she's not being very understanding, Jesus is understanding. When your spouse is perhaps being inconsiderate or unkind towards you in your pain, remember that Jesus is with you in your suffering. When your parents, when maybe even your pastor has failed to enter into your grief with you the way that he should. When your fellow church members, and maybe even your children, have failed to enter into your grief with you the way that they should, remember that Jesus will never fail to do that. He will be there with you. The love of God enters into our grief with us. Point number two. The love of God bears with us in our pain. The love of God bears with us in our pain. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, look at verse 32. When Mary, so that was Martha, this is Mary. When Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It doesn't seem like they planned that. They were just both really confused, really hurting, really upset. And so both of them, the first thing that they say when they, when they meet Jesus is, why weren't you here? when you could have been. This is the language of lament. Lament is a mixture of faith and confusion and pain and sometimes a hint of accusation. This is the language of lament that we see all throughout the Bible. We see it with the patriarchs and the prophets. We see it with the psalmist. We see it with Job. We even see it from Jesus as he quotes the psalm, as he hangs there on that tree. Now here's what I want you to understand about this, this lament that we've been talking about this morning. It is an act of faith. A biblical lament is an act of faith. Look at what Mary says in verse 27. This is, by the way, after she's run to him, right, and said, you could have been here. 
In verse 27, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha knows exactly who Jesus is. She trusts in his identity. She believes in his abilities. But they are confused. Martha, Mary, both of them, they're hurt. Their faith is being tested in the midst of their pain, and it feels like it may fail them, but it is there. In their moment of weakness, they are on the verge of disrespecting Jesus by asking a question that could very well be interpreted as an insinuation. Why weren't you here? Doesn't this sound exactly like what we read earlier in the service, Psalm 10, right? The psalmist says, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You see that? Doesn't that sound a little bit like an accusation? Like, God, you've hidden yourself. You could be here, but you've hidden yourself. That's what the sisters are saying. You could have been here with Lazarus, the one that you loved, but you weren't. Why? There are two things I want us to see here in response or about this lament in John 11. The first thing, this is sub-points if you want to put those in your notes. The first thing I want you to see is the patience of Jesus. The patience of Jesus. When the sisters ask Jesus this question, Notice his response. He doesn't say, you know, how dare you question me? I'm Jesus. You know, who are you? You're just women in the ancient Near Eastern world, which means you don't have much position. You don't have much power. You don't have much respect. Do you know who I am? I'm the rabbi who's going around here doing miracles, okay? I'm a rock star. Everywhere I go, a crowd assembles. He doesn't say that. He just cries with her. Jesus knows that she's suffering for a good reason, but he does not explain that to her in the moment. He just cries with her. Friends, we should know that God is just as patient with us in our suffering and our lament as he is with Mary and Martha. When the cancer comes back and you are angry and confused and hurt with God, when you've had two miscarriages and you're finally pregnant again and you've waited 12 weeks, not six weeks, you've waited 12 weeks to announce it because you know the other two miscarriages haven't gone well. People got excited and you got excited and then the baby was lost and everything, you, you were crushed. But this time you waited 12 weeks and you go to God and you announce it to all your friends and family members. You go to God and you say, thank you, God, and then you lose the baby. And then you, you run to God in the midst of that pain and you say, why are you doing this? I know you, you're God, you're all powerful and you say you love me and you could have been here and you weren't here, you didn't save the baby, why? When you talk to God like that, he is patient with you. He doesn't say, how dare you talk to me like that? He says, I know. I know that you don't understand, but here, just take my hand and be with me. The second thing I want us to see here, the second sub point, is the nature of faith-fueled lament. 
The difference between a sinful accusation towards God and a faith-fueled lament is the difference between Job and Job's wife. You remember the story of Job, right? Job couldn't see what God was doing behind the scenes, but God was doing a lot. And part of God's plan for Job's life was that he suffer significantly for the glory of God's name. And he lost everything. He lost his health. He lost his children. He lost his livestock. He lost his financial security. He lost his position of respect in the community. He lost it all. Now, Job's wife responded to this providential hand of God by saying, you know what? Screw God. You know, if this is how he's going to treat us, let's curse God and just die. Because I can't do this. That's what Job's wife said. And Job, through the deepest possible suffering, through suffering I don't think that anybody in this room, myself included, has come close to experiencing. The only person who's probably suffered more than Job is Jesus himself on the cross. Through the deepest possible pain, he responds to his wife and he says, should we accept from God only good and not adversity? Job's wife sinned. But in all that Job said, he did not sin. Why? Because in his pain and sorrow, he did not run away from God, but rather he ran to God. Martha cries out to Jesus, I don't understand, but I do believe. We don't know what, if anything, Mary said to Jesus after her initial statement. The text doesn't tell us, but we do know what she did. Look at verses 28 and 29. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went out to him. She's hurting. She's confused. She's angry. Her brother's dead. She knows Jesus loves him. She knows Jesus could have been there. She gets the word from her sister. He's here. She could just say, you know what? I don't want to go talk to him. He could have been here to help, but he wasn't here. No, she runs towards him in the midst of her pain and suffering. And I feel like I can just see it, you know? You, just, you read the Bible stories enough and they begin to come alive to you. And I can just see her just walking towards Jesus. Just all of these emo- emotions boiling up within her as she moves towards him. I can see her probably trying to maintain her composure. <coughs> Tears streaming gently down her, tree- her cheeks. And then, as soon as she finds herself in his presence, she crumbles. The text says she falls at his feet. But notice where she falls. At his feet. She runs to him in faith. Every single person in this room who is a Christian will suffer terribly in this life. We shouldn't get involved in the game of trying to compare notes to see whose suffering is worse. That's never helpful. But we will all suffer. It's been promised to us that we will suffer with him. And only if we suffer with him will we reign with him. Now, some of us maybe have already gone through the worst suffering in our lives. Some of us maybe perhaps are in the middle of the worst suffering in our lives. And for some of us, 
that terrible suffering is still on the way. So the question you need to ask yourself as you walk away from John 11 is, when it comes to me and my suffering, what will I do with my pain? My anger, my confusion, where will I run? To whom will I run? When the business fails, when the cancer comes back, when the child dies, when the marriage fails, when your addiction wins, when it feels like the world is collapsing down around you, where will you go? Will you run to drugs and alcohol? Will you run to illicit sexual gratification? Will you bury yourself in your work? Will you mask the pain with paperwork in the office? Will you retreat into the idol of family? Will you run into your own good works in bad religion to find safety there, to find comfort there? Will you turn to food or to clothes or to fitness? Or will you run to Jesus and fall at his feet through the deepest possible pain and cry out to him in faith? Point number three, the love of God is God-centered. At the very beginning of this morning's sermon, <coughs> I told you that I wanted to talk to you about the surprising offense of God's love. That is, the way that God has, the, the nature of God's love that he's revealed to us in his word is offensive to us in our carnal state. This whole sermon has really been one long journey to point number three. The offensive nature of God's love as it is put on full display in the story of Lazarus. The thing that offends us so much about God's love as it is revealed to us in his word is this. The love of God is not fundamentally about us. That is what we find so offensive. The love of God is not fundamentally about us. It is about God himself and his own glory. You're probably not going to hear that in many churches this morning. That's not how you fill the room up. But it is what God says in his word. Sinful human beings are incredibly self-centered. We think that the whole world revolves around us. Because of this, we read the Bible and we think that the Bible is all about us. When we hear the gospel message, we think that the gospel message is all about us. When we think about God himself, we think he's up there in heaven and his greatest concern at any point in time must be us in what we are going through, our suffering. It is not. That's not to say it's not a concern, it's just not the greatest concern in his mind. God's love is most concerned with showing you his glory, not preventing your pain. God's love, this is, this is all of John 11 right here, or this, this section of John 11, packed into one sentence. God's love is most concerned with showing you his glory, not preventing your pain. And as a matter of fact, it's only in a fallen world when we pass through pain that we can truly behold 
his glory. It is true that God cares about our suffering, but Christians must understand and believe that the love of God is centered first and foremost on God himself. You can see that in verse four. Go back to verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said the illness, this illness, which would cause him to die, it does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So when Jesus gets this word from the messenger, my friend, the one I love, he's, he's going to die. His first thought is not about Lazarus. His first thought is not about Lazarus's suffering. His first thought is not, oh no, what about Martha and Mary and what they're going to go through? I'm not saying it's not a thought that he has, but it's not the first thought that he has. It's not even the most prominent thought that he has. The most prominent thought that he has is the one that he expresses. You may be thinking that this death of my loved one will lead to my diminished glory, but don't worry. It won't. Look at verse 42. This is as Jesus prays to the Father before the resurrection of Lazarus. He says, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this kind of out loud, right, in this way, on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When Jesus prays, he says, I know that I could just sit here silently in my heart just kind of talk to you, right? I don't have to say it out loud. And I know that if I prayed to you like that, you would hear me and you would respond to me. I know that. But I'm praying this prayer out loud so that everyone around me can hear me. Why? Because when they hear Jesus talking to God and when they hear the Father responding to Jesus, it glorifies the Father and glorifies the Son. Jesus prays out loud so that the maximum amount of glory will be uh, drawn out from this situation. During our time in 1 Corinthians, on our Wednesday night studies, we saw, the Apostle Paul teaches us, that God does everything that he does, listen, the way that he does it, so that he might receive the maximum amount of glory. And that's exactly what we see in this morning's text. Think about what's happening as Jesus is traveling to Bethany, right? Remember, it's a four-day journey. He waited until Lazarus died before he left. Four-day journey. What's happening during those four days? Well, a couple of things. The first thing that we have to think about is the mourners are gathering. Look at verses 18 and 19. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So what, what the author is saying here is like, okay, here's Jerusalem where like this, this hive of, of Jewish activity, very populous. Here's Bethany kind of two miles away. Jesus is coming from way up here, right? But uh, Lazarus' death is so significant and this family is so well known that all these Jews are coming from Jerusalem to go be with them in their suffering, right? All these mourners are coming out of Jerusalem to Bethany. So this village, which might have had 5, 10, 15,000 people, who knows how many people have swelled in there to be with them in their suffering and pain. So why does this matter? 
it seems like one of the reasons that Jesus waited two days, why he made sure to let Lazarus die before making the four-day journey, was so that the mourners would have time to assemble. Jesus could have resurrected Lazarus with less people there. And if he just would have resurrected Lazarus with Lazarus and Mary and Martha and maybe a few close friends and family and associates present, God would have been glorified. But Jesus doesn't want God to be minimally glorified. He wants God to be maximally glorified. So he waits to let the full number of mourners come and behold his glory. He wanted an audience. So he let the tension build. He let the tears accumulate. He let the frustrations rise. He let the anger simmer. He let the doubt increase. And he waited until Jesus, uh, until Lazarus was dead for four days. Look at verse 39. Jesus goes to the tomb and he says, Take away the stone, Martha. <laughs> Same way I misread it last time. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, uh, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. This is the second thing that we need to see here. When she says there will be an odor, this is the understatement of a lifetime. If you've never smelled a rotting and decaying body, I do not wish that upon you. Within minutes after death, the body begins to decay. Cells begin to rupture. Bacteria begin to flourish. And within hours, the body grows grows cold and stiff. And four days after death, in a non-climate-controlled environment, the smell of Lazarus's decaying flesh would have assaulted with a vengeance the noses of anyone who happened to be around that tomb as the stone was rolled away. Jesus made sure that Lazarus was good and dead. I mean, really dead. Four days decaying flesh dead before he came to resurrect him so that people could literally smell in the air the miracle that God was doing. Look at verses 14 and 15 just one more time. I know we've been here a couple times, but there's just so much to unpack. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Why was Jesus glad that he wasn't there to save Lazarus? Is it because he was cruel and callous? Is it because he loves death? Is it because he wanted to see Mary and Martha suffer, cry, weep over their dead brother? No, friends. Jesus was glad that he wasn't there to save him because if he would have been there, he would not have received the maximum amount of glory for his resurrecting power. Think about what this means existentially or experientially for the people who were on the other side of Jesus' plan for maximal glory. Think about what it must have been like for Lazarus. Jesus isn't just Lazarus' friend. Lazarus is Jesus' friend. 
Think about the emotions he must have experienced as he lay there on his deathbed knowing that a messenger was going out to retrieve Jesus. Think about what he must have been experiencing in his heart. It's possible and almost probable that Lazarus died with feelings of disappointment in his heart towards Jesus because he didn't come in time to save him. Mary and Martha were racked with pain and confusion and anger and doubt. What they went through was terrible. Now, after the resurrection, John 12, 2, they're at the dinner party. Mary and Martha Lazarus, if you would just kind of pull them aside from the dinner party for a second and just say, hey, listen, I know what you went through was really terrible. And praise God that like, man, Jesus came and resurrected. But like, he could have been here, he could have been here earlier and he could have kept you from going through that. Do you wish that he would have gotten here earlier or are you glad that he did what he did the way that he did it? They would say 100% without a doubt, we are so glad that he let us suffer so that we could behold his glory. It hurt. It hurt real bad, but we are so glad. As I cried myself to sleep on that bathroom floor so many years ago, begging, pleading with God to come and to rescue me, to protect me, to take the pain away, when he didn't, it hurt. And it hurt bad. And I was really mad at God for a long time. But if you were to ask me today, if I would go back and undo that, I would say not for, all, not for anything in the world. Because it was only when I passed through that suffering that I was able to behold the glory of my God. Why, God, do you stand so far away? That was my cry, right? Mary, Martha, you, other Christians imprisoned in concentration camps in North Korea even now, suffering in China, suffering in Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Iran. Why, God, do you stand so far away from us? Why do you hide yourself from us in pain? We know why. It doesn't make it any easier. Friend, if you think that now that you understand this, the next time that you go through some terrible suffering, it's going to like make it not hurt as much. No, that's not the way it works. It's still going to hurt. But your hurt will be paired with hope. And that hope will be your lifeline. And it will give you the power you need to persevere and make it through the suffering. As a child, I thought that protecting me from pain was the most loving thing that God could do for me. But I was wrong. The most loving thing that God could ever do for me is to show me his glory. And the same thing is true 
for you. At the beginning of this morning's sermon, I told you that Jesus was glad that I suffered because he loved me, the things that I suffered. And some of you were probably taken aback by that. But the idea that God would be pleased to use our suffering for his glory is really just Christianity 101. It's just shocking to us when we apply it to extreme suffering like child abuse. But it is still true. Think about the gospel. In Isaiah 53, the death of Jesus and the subsequent experience of or the the experience of, of the wrath of God that Jesus endured on the cross, that was prophesied by Isaiah. And I, I really, I like the language of the King James Version uh, here because it really does capture, I think, what the rest of Scripture says about God and, and his response to this death. It says, Yet it pleased the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Do you think that God enjoyed seeing his only son die on the cross? His only begotten, his perfectly holy, his eternally beautiful son hanging there on that bloody cross, bearing the sins of the nations in his body. Do you think he enjoyed that? Do you think a father could look at his son suffering the wrath of God and be able to enjoy that in the moment? No, he couldn't. But nevertheless, Isaiah says, It pleased the Lord for Jesus to experience this. Why? Well, again from Isaiah 53. Because the punishment that he endured brought us peace. He didn't enjoy his son experiencing that pain, but he was overjoyed to know what that painful experience would bring about. Through Jesus' atoning work on the cross, God was reconciling the world to himself. He was bringing many sons and daughters to glory. God the Father was glad because he loved his son to see the son hang there on that tree because he knew that it would lead to the salvation of all those who believed in him. He knew it would be awful, but he knew that it would be worth it. Friends, your suffering may feel like an unbearable weight right now. But trust me, trust God when he tells you that it will be worth it because you will behold his glory. William Cowper in his amazing hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. I know that uh, God moves in mysterious ways is like this trite thing that we say now, right? Whenever something happens and we don't understand it, well, God moves in mysterious ways, brother. Well, the hymn that that phrase comes from is not trite at all. It is deeply profound. It feels like William Cowper just read John 11 and then wrote these verses. He says, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, The clouds that you much dread are big with mercy and will break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. 
His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. But God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. As beautiful as that is, we should probably let God's word have the last word to us this morning. So here from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. He's talking to you, brother or sister. He's talking to you. If you are a Christian, he's talking to you. Though you are being grieved by various trials... So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the full revelation of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you let us go through everything that you let us go through so that we can behold your glory. And now we do behold it, God, with unveiled faces. And as we look into it, we pray that we would be changed by it. We know that we will be changed by it. We look forward to the day, God, when all suffering will be wiped away and we will be completely happy in you. Until that day, God, strengthen us, keep us, and remind us of these gospel truths. Amen.